That's awesome, Misty. Thanks. It's Scott Wood's birthday today. I don't know how old he is, but if you see him, please give him 35 spankings and two pinches because he needs to grow more than an inch. I'm going to start today by uh, telling you a story I don't tell many people. When I was 17 years old, the summer before I went to college, I was kind of recruited to be the drum major of a drum and bugle corps. I don't know if you ever know what this thing is. They are kind of a special marching band that they compete during the summer. It's a lot of fun. I had been the drum major at my high school my senior year, and apparently I was flamboyant enough, if you can believe that, that they, uh, they wanted me to, to tour with them during the summer and compete all over the West Coast. It was just a blast. We had a great time. The corps was called the Marauders out of Longview, Washington. So we were in Santa Clara, California one day, about ready to compete, and we'd been doing the show for a month, month and a half, um, and it was hot. It was, it was a thousand degrees kind of hot, and uh, like July in, in that Sacramento Basin. And, and we were in these uniforms, you know band uniforms? Holy moly, those things get hot. And so we, uh, we were sweating and just waiting to get on the field, and we get the band, the core on the field, and I get them started. We start really well. I mean, we've been practicing, and we've been, we've been doing a show now for a month and a half, almost every day, and we are tight, and we are good. But something happened. In music, in drum corps language, it's called phasing. It's where one half of the group is playing at one part of the music, and the other half is playing somewhere else. That's bad. <laughs> they were about three bars away from each other. And it wasn't one of those cool echoes, like row, row, row your boat kind of echo. It, it wasn't like that. So I am working my tail off, bah, 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 trying to get them to get, come on, get. And that's all I remember. Apparently, we did four more songs that I directed. And uh, apparently, I had done it so many times, I was on autopilot, and I just directed, and we got finished. And I remember as we were coming off the field, you do one of these little things, and you march, and the drums. I'm watching it from above. And I'm watching him come off, and I'm seeing me, and I'm, right, I'm behind him. I'm doing my little drum major dance. I'm thinking, this is strange. And we got, we got trooped to the area where we were supposed to stop, and I called the band to a hold, I remember, and collapsed. The next thing I remember is the paramedics saying that my heartbeat was at 14. That's bad. And as soon as they said my heartbeat was at 14, it happened. I didn't see the tunnel. I didn't see the white lights, and none of my relatives came to meet me. But I was kind of in this room, and uh, a voice that wasn't really unexpected, but nothing there, asked me one question. I said, do you want to stay or do you want to go? And I'll be honest with you, uh, I've regretted my decision ever since. I said, if I go, who's going to get the trophy? <laughs> I got to stay. And at that moment, I woke up on the ground again, and I sat up to the fear and fright of everyone else because I was nearly dead, and I drank four quarts of Gatorade, and I was ready to roll. I was fine. And we won, and I got the first place trophy. And it took me re just years to realize the mistake I had made that day. 
See, I could have been with Jesus. Could have been with Jesus. And instead, my pride over getting a stupid trophy left me here. This wasn't the first time I nearly died, though. I have a lot of experience with this. When I was uh, four or five, probably four or five, I was on the beach in Florida, clear water Florida, the Gulf, warm, nice, playing in the sand, you know, just like kids do, and a wave came and just wiped me out and took me out to sea. And my grandfather ran after me and plucked me out of it. That was fun. When I was six, I do recall this one, a five-year-old friend and I were told by a 12-year-old that it would be a great firework if we stuck a match in the gas tank of a car. He was right. And I was badly burned on my face and head as the gas tank, which was luckily full, did this flamethrower thing and hit us. I nearly drowned again when I was nine. I fell in the deep end of a pool. I didn't know how to swim. And I remember looking up from the bottom of the 10-foot area going, wow, I wonder, I wonder how this goes. And a, and a guy that was talking to my dad jumped in and saved me. After that drum corps incident, I almost died a couple more times. I was in the Army, and we were doing a live fire night exercise. It's dark. There's trace arounds going. You got your head down. You're crawling through all sorts of stuff. And a flare went off, and I was momentarily blinded. And I'm crawling blindly, and I start to crawl up and over into something. Well, it was a parapet. Those are the things that explode to make it seem like you're in war. And I realized just at the right moment, I'm in a parapet. I'm about to explode. And I rolled out of it as it exploded. I remember the sergeant coming and picking me up. You okay? Yeah. Get back down. Keep going. And then when I was 33 years old, I had a bleeding ulcer that almost took me out. So I remember as a youngster always thinking, I'm going to be dead by 35. There's no way, given my life, that I'm going to live past 35. Apparently God had other plans because I keep on having these experiences and living through them. But as you can imagine, all these near-death experiences have maybe kind of fascinated with this idea of death. You know, what, what happens when you die? I think I've read every book there is to read about death, near-death experiences, and, and uh, what heaven's like, and people doing all this work. Because so I'm just, I'm I, almost a, a morbid fascination with it. I want to know what heaven looks like. I, I want to know what my body there's going to be like. I want to know what it's going to be like being with Jesus. What's really cool, though, is Scripture talks a lot about heaven, very descriptively. But God's kind of tricky. He puts it all over the place. It'd be nice if there were the book of heaven, and you could just go, I'm going to read the book of heaven, and it tells me everything I need to know. But that's not, what, that's not what we did here. But if you think about it for a second, I'll ask you this question. What did Jesus do for us on the cross? He saved us. What did he save us from? I'm getting lots of answers. This is great. Saved us from our sin so that we could be reconciled to God so that we can go to heaven and be with him forever. See, most of the Bible, if you frame it around the heaven piece, most of the scripture talks about that. That's the whole point, is God wants to be with us forever. And I'm fascinated by that. 
So today, I'm going to take a step of faith and talk to you a little bit about what Scripture says about death, about heaven, about our eternity, how you have to spend the rest of your eternity with me. It's great. And what I'm hoping is by the time I'm done, you are as excited about it as I am. Because it is thrilling, absolutely thrilling, what God has in store for us. So before I get into this, I want to frame the argument a little bit. We talked about this a little bit in our Bible study Wednesday night. You ever remember scripture saying, watch, watch for Jesus, he's going to return. He's going to come like a thief in the night, right? He's coming, could happen any time. And I got to be honest that in my little pea brain, I think, but it's been 2,000 years. This whole any time thing's not really working for me. What do you mean any time? 2,000 years seems like a long time to me. And I read about how Paul would tell the churches, be on, be on guard, be alert. Well, I want to be on alert and on guard because I want to see Jesus. But 2,000 years. And I don't know if it's a lack of faith or if it's just the way I think, but I'm leaning toward the fact that there's so much more to be accomplished before Jesus comes back according to Scripture. It's not going to happen in the next 50 years for me. Some of you are just a little older than me, and you have less time. You know, we can look at it this way. Scripture says that to God, a day is like a thousand years, and a thousand years is like a day. But I'll be honest with you that I'm not so sure that that is intellectually satisfying for us to say, oh, it's only been two days since Jesus left. Look for him on Thursday. I can't even figure out how a year equals seven dog years, more or less a thousand years in a day. So I was, I've been thinking about this, because I'm, I'm interested in, in being a faithful guy and knowing when Jesus comes. And one day I was chewing on this, and, I, and it kind of struck me, just like that old holy two-by-four across the forehead. My time is short. My time is short. When I die, I'm going to see Jesus. Now, Jesus may come back in all his glory sometime this week. I don't know. Only the Father knows, right? But I'm going to see Jesus on my last breath, my first breath in heaven. I'm seeing Jesus. I don't even know. I might have an appointment with him this afternoon at 2. Who knows? I mean, who knows when I'm going to see Jesus? But no matter whether it's today or 50 years from now, I have to embrace this idea that my time is short. And there needs to be a certain urgency to the fact that I'm going to see Jesus. It could happen today while I'm walking around, I fall down the stairs, boom, I'm done. It could happen 50 years from now. I don't know. But I do have to watch. Because that moment could come like a thief in the night very quickly. Either way, I'm seeing Jesus. So why does this matter? Do you all feel an urgency about meeting Jesus? Is your heart pounding? Do you feel the Holy Spirit just burning in you to meet Jesus? Chances are not. And that's okay. It's been 2,000 years. And the more that we hear and read about Scripture, about how long it's been since Jesus returns, we lose that sense of urgency. 
But realize, in the nanosecond, when you expire here and you go there, wow. I would hope you would have that urgency because it's coming and you don't know when. I don't want us to be complacent about this idea. I want us to be excited as a church, as Christians, so that when we go out and shine Christ's light in the community, it's not that we're just happy, righteous, holy people. We're not Ned Flanders. We are people excited about the fact that we have eternity with the Lord. And I worry about us. Because when I meet fellow Christians, we don't, I don't see that in their eyes. And I want us to be a congregation that does. You never know, Jesus might be your next Tuesday 10 o'clock appointment. So let's start with the basic. What happens when you die? You know what scripture says? Your, your soul leaves your body, you go to heaven, right? Jesus said he is the resurrection and the life for those who believe in him. They have eternal life. That's in John 11, 25. Further, Jesus tells one of the criminals on the cross, remember there's two criminals on the cross with him? One of them is mocking him, which I always thought was strange that the guy that's on the cross is mocking Jesus. But the other one says, don't do that, he's the Lord. And what does Jesus tell him? Today you will be in paradise. So we know that that last breath, you're in paradise. And in that language of the time, paradise was heaven. The third heaven. We'll get into that. Paul said to be out of the body is to be with Christ. I think that's a strong, one of the strongest statements. To be out of the body is to be with Christ. Man, that excites me. Whew. Luke tells us that when we die, we don't actually die. We're like angels. And even the Old Testament acknowledges our eternity. In Isaiah 25.8, Isaiah tells us that God will swallow up death forever. And if you're keeping score, that was like 568 years before Jesus went to the cross. But Isaiah was pointing to the cross saying, God's going to swallow up death forever. Jesus defeated death on the cross, and you will have eternal life with God forever. Oh, man, it's going to be great. See, Hebrews 11.1, you've heard this before. It says... Through our faith, we are sure for what we hope for and certain of the things we don't see. Let me put this in context. We are sure of what we hope for, and we hope for eternal life, right? We hope for... See, God put an eternity in our hearts, according to Ephesians, and we're certain of what we don't see. What don't we see? We don't see heaven. But we're certain of it, absolutely certain of it. So that's some pretty good book learning. How many of you are really moved by book learning? Lisa, great, thank you. I've got, I've got Lisa and Gary. We'll be having a book study after class today. Book learning is great, but it's not that emotional, guttural, I know it for sure in my, in my heart kind of stuff. And God knew that. So scripture goes on, and it tells us stories about what happens when people die. Scripture makes it clear that at death, the spirit leaves the body, which is cool because it confirms, one, we have a spirit, and two, that it goes somewhere. That's, that's encouraging. Jesus commended his spirit to God and died, according to Luke, when he was on the cross. 
Remember Stephen, the first martyr? He cried out, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. Now if you remember the story, as he's getting stoned, Stephen is seeing the heavens open, and he sees Jesus, right? Do you believe it? Remember that part about the doubting Thomas I talked to you earlier about? We're getting into it, folks. When, he, when she gave birth to Benjamin, Rachel's soul was in departing, and she died. Her soul was departing. Abraham gave up the ghost. Isaac gave up the ghost. Ananias fell down and gave up the ghost. Everyone's given up the ghost, including Sapphira, who fell down straight away and yielded up the ghost. <laughs> Old Testament, New Testament, doesn't matter where you go, people are giving up their ghosts. The spirit is leaving the body upon death. Great illustrations. All over scripture. But God wasn't done teaching us yet. He said, some of you are going to be cynical. So let me tell you the story about Lazarus and the rich man. Remember that one? That's in Luke 16, verses 19 through 31. Why don't you open your Bibles to Luke 16, 19 through 31. Say amen when you get there. Oh, thank you. I was just going to wait because I thought you all went mood or something. <laughs> Here we go. So I'm not going to read it, but what I want to do is kind of have you follow along the story with me. And I want to point out some really important things that we should learn. So the story is basically there's this rich guy and Lazarus is this poor guy and the rich guy is not very nice to him and they both die. And the rich guy ends up in Hades and Lazarus ends up at the bosom of Abraham, heaven. It says that when Lazarus died, the angels carried him to heaven. So is it reasonable to think maybe when you die, your spirit is carried to heaven by angels? Do you believe in angels? Yeah. We don't talk about angels very much, do we? Once there, Lazarus, Lazarus is met by Abraham. And in, in, in Lazarus' day, Abraham was the patriarch. He was the father of the Jews. He, he was the guy. He was the figure. Paul tells us to be out of the bodies with Christ. So is it too far of a jump to think when those angels bring us to heaven that we're going to meet Jesus? Am I going too far? Is that, I don't think that's too far of a jump. In the story, the rich man in Hades can see Lazarus, and he recognizes him. That indicates to me, at least, that you're recognizable. You didn't turn into something else, and poor old rich guy's looking up going, who are all those people? He recognizes Lazarus, and he recognizes Abraham. There's this chasm, the story says, it can't be crossed. But we can speak and hear, apparently, because they're having this conversation. And in Hades, apparently you can feel pain because it says the rich man was in agony in the fire. And so the story tells me one more thing. It says that there are no second chances. No after-death confessions. The rich man and his brothers didn't believe Moses, so why should Abraham send Lazarus back to warn his brothers? That's scary. Do you know any people that are not in the faith who maybe 
believe that, oh, I, if it's really real, as soon as I die in that, in that spot between my last breath and whatever happens to me next, I can... The Lazarus story tells me that's not accurate. The story tells me that that last breath is your last breath. Get it done beforehand. So I look at that story and say, does it track with the rest of Scripture? You know, one of the things we, we learn is when you're doing interpretation of the Bible is the Bible interprets the Bible. Scripture interprets Scripture. So i got to compare this Lazarus story to find out if it's just a story versus other things in, in Scripture. Paul tells us in 2 Corinthians chapter 5 that when we die, we'll receive a heavenly body. Not the resurrected one, that comes later, but one meant for heaven. We see in Matthew chapter 17, the body is given to us uh, is not some type of ghostly kind of thing. And here's why I know that. Do you remember when Jesus was transfigured and he was with Peter and John and James, I think? And, and then a, Moses and Elijah show up. Remember that? And they all, they're not scared of him. They're not scared like they were when Jesus was walking across the water and they thought he was a ghost. They, they kind of recognized him. Now, my wife Lisa brought up a great point because I had a different section written about this. And she says, Tom, how did they recognize him? There were no pictures. I went, ooh, good point. So I assume that somehow or another there was knowledge given to them. But they were not scary, ghostly figures. They were somehow transcendent bodily forms. That's cool. Does your body work on this earth? Mine doesn't. Mine stinks. I got a lemon. And I cannot wait for this heavenly body that's going to be perfect and, and not be like this one. The book of Revelations confirms there's, there's angels. Now, lots and lots of angel stories in the Old Testament, right? Revelation says there's thousands upon thousands of them. We know from their other appearances that angels have certain jobs to do. Is it a stretch to think one of their jobs is to take your soul to heaven? Is that going too far for you? I, I can buy into that, because they do all sorts of other things. Lazarus is comforted according to the story. He's comforted. He's had a pretty rough life, right? He's comforted in heaven. And that kind of tracks with what we know about there's no sickness, no pain, no sorrow, no crying, no hunger, no thirst, and we'll have perfect rest. That, that seems to track. So that, that story that you're reading about Lazarus and the rich man, do you think that happened? Or do you think that's just Jesus making up a story for show? You've got to decide that. But do you believe the truths held within that story? Whether you think the story happened or not. Do you believe the truths? Do you believe that there's a heaven and there's a hell? Do you believe that there are angels that take your body up? Do you believe you're going to see Jesus when you die? Do you believe that you're comforted? Or do you struggle with that? Ecclesiastes 3.11 says that God put eternity in our hearts. Do you feel it? Are you a people that actually believe there's more after this? Or do you question it? And if you question, no big deal. Don't get me wrong. I mean, there's no right or wrong here. But God wants us to feel the sense of eternity in us. He wants us to have hope. You know, we talk all through Scripture about hope. Hope in what? Hope in eternity with Christ. What could be better than that? That's what the hope is about. Do you feel that? Do you feel that eternity in your heart? I think Scripture is pretty clear about what happens when you die. 
Your last breath here is your first breath there. And man, is it going to be awesome. But it gets better. Heaven, for you, for you individually, is going to be perfect. And here's why. The one who made you is the maker of the heavens. And you're going to fit. How many of you really think you fit all the time on earth? Do you ever feel like a square peg, round hole? And you're going like that all the time? Heaven is going to be this perfect fit. It's going to be this wonderful place just for you because the God who created you created this for you. Mm. 1 Corinthians 2.9 says, No eye has seen, no ear has heard, no mind has conceived what God has prepared for those who love him. Stop on that for a second. You cannot even conceive in your wildest dreams and fantasies what God has in store for you. Whatever you think the greatest of the greatest thing would be, you're wrong. It's better than that. That's enough for me. I'm ready to go right now. But there's more, Scripture tells us. In Hebrews 12, 23-25, God says these words, But you have come to the mount, to Mount Zion, to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem. You have come to thousands upon thousands of angels in joyful assembly. To the church of the firstborn, whose names are written in heaven, you have come to God, the judge of all, to the spirits of the righteous made perfect, to Jesus, the mediator of the new covenant, and to the sprinkled blood that speaks a better word than the blood of Abel. I want to really land on something here. You know, you read scripture sometimes, you want, oh, that's nice. I want to land here on the heavenly Jerusalem, the city of the living God. Do you think this could be the same Jerusalem that John sees in his revelation, in the book of Revelation 21.1? Could it be that that heavenly Jerusalem is the place Jesus went to prepare a room for each of us? Remember that, Jesus? I'll prepare a room for you. If it wasn't so, I wouldn't tell you. Let's take a look and see what John says about this heavenly Jerusalem in Revelation. It's chapter 21, verses 15 through 27, if you're interested. The angel who talked with me had a measuring rod of gold to measure the city, its gates, and its walls. This is in heaven, folks. The city was laid out like a square as long as it was wide. He measured the city with the rod and found it to be 12,000 stadia in length and as wide and high as it is long. It's a cube. The angel measured the wall using human measurements, and it was 144 cubits thick. The wall was made of jasper, and the city was pure gold, as pure as glass. The foundations of the city walls were decorated with every kind of precious stone. The first foundation was jasper, the second sapphire, the third agate, the fourth emerald, the fifth onyx, the sixth ruby, the seventh chrysolite, the eighth beryl, the ninth topaz, the tenth turquoise, the eleventh jacinth, and the twelfth amethyst. The twelve gates were the twelve pearls, each gate made of a single pearl. The great street of the city was gold and as pure as transparent glass. I did not see a temple because the Lord God Almighty and the Lamb are its temple. The city does not need sun or the moon to shine on it, for the glory of God gives it all the light, 
and the Lamb is its lamp. The nations will walk by its light, and the kings of the earth will bring their splendor into it. On no day will its gates ever be shut, for there will be no night there. The glory and honor of the nations will be brought into it. Nothing impure will ever enter it, nor will anyone who does what is shameful or deceitful, but only those whose names are written in the books in the Lamb's Book of Life, i.e. you guys. So let's talk about what this thing looks like in like our terms. It's 1,400 miles long, high, width. Think about it this way. It's from New York to Denver, from Canada to Florida. The walls are 200 feet thick. I don't know if you're showing slides or not. If you do, I've had a slide that had the breastplate from the priests with all the colors. The jasper is translucent. You can see through it. Now think about that. Think of, a, think of some kind of stone you can see through. Isn't that beautiful? These, who has HDTV? Everybody have HDTV? This is better than HDTV. This is going to be these colors. The, the sardinox is, is red and white. It's got reddish and honey colors, sea green, beautiful colors. Can you get your head wrapped around that? This, this vision that John had of heaven? But there's more. Revelation 22. The angel showed me a river of water of life. The water of life. The wa- what did Jesus say? I will give you living water, right? Remember he was at the well with the Samaritan woman? You're right, you don't live with your husband, you've been married a thousand times and you're living with some guy. Remember that? Remember that story? Give you living water, as clear as crystal flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb down the middle of the great street. On each side of the river stood the tree of life, the tree of life, and it's bearing 12 crops of fruit. There's no more curse They will see his face, and his name will be on their foreheads. Did you know your name gets changed? This is the cool part. I hate my name. My, my, my parents, my dad's last name was Goldman. He was Jewish. My mother's last name was Schmidt. She was pure-blood German. So when the first child came along in 1950, my mother said, we are not having Jewish names on these children, because at that time in America, that was not a popular thing. They could have picked up the telephone book and picked any name in the book. And they picked man? Really? I cannot wait till my name is changed. But scripturally, when God changes your name, it's an ownership thing. He has the authority to. When Adam was on earth here, he was allowed to name the animals because he had dominion over them. When God changes Abraham, Abram's name to Abraham, and he changes Jacob's name to Israel, he's changing your name. It's going to be on your forehead. That's not because you need to look in a mirror to find out what it is. It's because God is sealing you. And they will reign forever and ever. Philippians 3.20 tells us that our citizenship is in heaven. You don't belong here. This, this, isn't, this isn't the final resting place. So I believe that if our citizenship's in heaven and they got this giant cube city thing, the new Jerusalem in heaven, and Jesus said he went to prepare a room for me, it might just be that place. When you read that in scripture, when you read Revelations, I'm sure you've all read Revelations, I'm sure you 
ponder it every night. Did you see that city and went, yeah, that's just illustration. I think it's real. And that excites me. If you are someone those cynical, doesn't believe that's literal, great. Let me tell you what God's trying to tell you. It is so awesome. It is more awesomer than anything you can imagine in your mind. Take that literally. So Jesus tells us in, in uh, Matthew 6.20, you've heard this, don't store up treasures on this earth that will be uh, taken out by rust and moth. Store up treasures in heaven, right? Seems pretty simple, right? Yeah, we gotta, we got to keep our eyes on heaven. Store up treasures up there. Don't worry about our, our possessions on earth. But if you think about this a little bit, there's a lot more to this story. It has very significant meaning for us if we are a people that believe in heaven and are eager about what it's going to be like. Do you know how you store up treasures in heaven? Have you thought about that? What did Jesus tell us to do? If you love me, you'll obey me. How do you obey Jesus? You do what he said, right? So first, you love God and you love each other. No, 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 I mean it. Love God and love each other. Not, not that fake love. Not that, that everyone come to church and smile and then go out of here miserable. Real, true, agape love. You use your gifts. I was telling a class this morning, as a manager, as an administrator, as a supervisor, my job is to, re to maximize return on investment. That's my job. If my investment is widgets, i got to make more widgets. If my investment is money, i got to make more money. If my investment is people, I need to wring every single ounce of potential out of them. Jesus wants a high return on investment with you. He's indwelt you with the Holy Spirit. He's given you spiritual gifts. He blesses you every day. You want treasures in heaven? What are you doing with those things? Are you getting everything out of them you possibly can? Hmm. I know I don't. I wish I did. I got to work on it. That's something that I really work on. How can I do more? How can I, how can I store up these treasures in heaven by doing what Jesus asked me to do? Remember that at the end, every knee shall bow and everyone will recognize Jesus as Lord? Right? Did you know there are actually two judgment seats? This might be new for some of you. There is Christ's judgment seat, also known as the Bema seat, and then there's the one everyone thinks about, which is the white throne of judgment. But there's two different seats, and here's why. As believers, are you going to be judged on your sin? Everyone go like this. No, I mean it. Go like this. <laughs> no! Your sin was judged at the cross. You are not guilty. Jesus took care of it. The white throne of judgment is for unbelievers who had every opportunity to accept the free gift and grace of God and chose not to. But the Christ judgment seat, there's judgment. And he's going to look at you and say, Anya, how'd you do with those gifts I gave you? She gives a thumbs up. And Jesus is going to reward you for what you did. 
So what do the rewards look like? Well, Scripture tells you that too. You ever heard that song? We fall down, we lay our crowns at the feet of Jesus. Crowns? Have you ever studied the crowns in Scripture? Do you think that's just fake too? You get crowns. Crowns. You're rewarded. There's five of them. There's something called the incorruptible crown. That's awarded for self-discipline, working to be righteous and holy, fighting your sin instead of embracing it. How many of you do that? How many fight your sin instead of embrace it? I love that answer. I'm not going to point out who it was. Um, (laughs) Someone went like this. I love that answer because that's exactly where all of us are. We're all like jello. We're like jello when it comes to this stuff. We've got to fight our sin because I want this incorruptible crown. I don't want to embrace it as a lifestyle or, or uh, yeah, I just can't stop. You are indwelt by the Holy Spirit. You have every single piece of power you need to fight your sin. The crown of righteousness is awarded to those who are faithful in light of Christ's return. Those of us that want him to come today. The crown of life is awarded to the martyrs. Those who died in the name of the Lord. The crown of glory will be awarded to those who serve God in full-time ministry, but I also think it's given to those who are engaged in ministries. Crown of rejoicing will be awarded to those who faithfully witness and bear fruit. How many of you bearing fruit right now? One hand is bearing fruit in a church full of Christians. Come on! Two hands! Come on! We're bearing fruit! We are loving our neighbors. We are loving our God. We are using our gifts. If you're not We're going to make this a 10-point sermon. So we get these crowns. You know what else we get? We get to reign with Jesus according to 2 Timothy. We get to rule with Jesus according to Revelation. We get to judge with Jesus. And if you know what that is, we're judging the bad angels in 1 Corinthians. Is that a lot to digest? You know, Gary's looking at his watch. He's like, my gosh, he's going long. So let me recap some of this. Your last breath on earth is your first in heaven. Your spirit will leave your body when you die, and angels will probably bring you to Jesus. You are a citizen of heaven, and you are going to live in this this place Christ has prepared for you, which might be this incredible new Jerusalem place. There will be no more pain, no more sorrow, no more hunger, no more thirst. Perfect understanding, perfect relationship, perfect love, and perfect rest. And Jesus is actually going to reward you for your deeds. And that's just heaven. That's not eternity. Have you heard about the new heaven and the new earth? In Revelation, God says he will make a new heaven and a new earth. You know where we first learned about the new heaven and new earth? Not in the book of Revelation. In the book of Isaiah. 65, 17 through 19. Behold, I will create new heavens and a new earth. The former things will not be remembered, nor will they come to mind. But be glad and rejoice forever in what I will create. 568 years before John wrote Revelation, Isaiah was telling us there's going to be a new heaven and a new earth. See, God's plan is perfect. Remember how he created the earth and he put, he, he said, it is very good. And then he created Adam. He says, it's good. Right? It was all good. None of what he created was bad. It was a great idea. It was corrupted. But God wins. 
and at the end he creates a new heaven and a new earth, and in our resurrected bodies, we go back to earth to live together forever and ever, happily ever after. Amen. <laughs> Paul tells us, for me, to live as Christ and to die as gain, if I am to go on living in this body, this will mean fruitful labor for me. Yet what shall I choose? I do not know. I am torn between the two. I desire to depart and be with Christ, which is far better. But I know it is more necessary for you that I remain in the body. Boy, he speaks to me when he says that because I want to go. But God has work for me to do here. If I'm on this side of the grass and I wake up, I have work to do. I'm going to close by reading... Uh, Something from Dan Schaefer, who wrote a book, one of these books on heaven. He says, our faith will determine what we invest in our eternity. Our faith will determine what we invest in our eternity. Maybe we need to truly ask ourselves what we really believe. We too glib glibly give lip service to certain truths, but don't really live as if they are true. Do you believe there's a heaven waiting for you? Do you believe the next world is eternal and therefore far superior to this one? Do you believe what Jesus said when he warned us not to lay up for ourselves treasures on this earth, but in heaven? Do you believe we ought to really set our minds on things above and not things of this earth? Do you believe that your works done on this earth will one day be judged to determine your eternal rewards? Do you believe that you have a limited amount of time to prepare for eternity? That meeting with Jesus could be right around the corner, folks. If you answered yes to this, there's one more question. Are you living as if it's true? <laughs> Only the Father knows what time is your time. And I feel this message has been completely inadequate to describe to you the truths of heaven and the eternity we're all going to live together. I want you to have an urgency about it, though. I want you to have an irrepressible smile on your face when you think of loved ones that have left before you. I've done a couple of funerals and I have a hard time when I get to a certain point of it because I'm so happy for the person who is sitting with Jesus right now because that person's where I want to be. Store up treasures in heaven. Do your works on earth. Glorify God. Make him proud of you. And remember to hit your knees. Thank Jesus who made all this possible. He sacrificed himself. He came to this earth to live as one of us, to die at a cross so that you can have all this magnificent stuff. You know why he did that? He loves you so much and he wants to spend eternity with you personally. That's how much you mean to him. Amen and amen. Misty, you ready to play the piano? She says yes. That's a good sign because then I was going to have to sing or dance or something if she didn't. We're going to stand and sing. Sing the wondrous love of Jesus. Kind of a perfect song. Come on, stand up. <laughs> 